welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Put on your nerd caps, listeners, because some of these forthcoming cases get nerdy indeed. And how about that Title 42 injunction from the District Court in D.C.? If I don't talk to you beforehand, then I'm positive that I won't. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. I'll have a new special episode for you after the holidays. To the cases! Before getting to the cases, I wanted to talk a bit about Capital Good Fund. Millions of families seeking to improve their immigration status face financial barriers due to the high cost of legal services. Nonprofit Capital Good Fund is working to make these resources available to all, especially those who would not otherwise qualify for traditional loans. Certified CDFI Capital Good Fund is partnering with attorneys to provide the financial services that families need. They offer affordable financing with no closing fees or down payments for those working with attorneys to move their case forward and to get attorneys out of the accounts receivable business. To learn more about the program, email immigration at goodfund.us or call 866-584-3651 and tell them who sent you. Starting off with the long-awaited matter of Coronado Acevedo, published by the Attorney General. This case is about termination. And it's about time, respectfully. This case vacates matter of SOG and FDB, which I lovingly refer to as matter of SOG. Really? The writing was on the wall a year and a half ago when the Attorney General vacated matter of Castro-Tum. A bit of background. Attorney General Jeff Sessions went on a bit of a crusade for a minute there, taking away core judicial functions from immigration judges. In addition to administrative closure, one of those core functions was the authority to terminate removal proceedings for any but the narrowest of reasons. According to Matter of SOG, it was for no reason other than DHS's failure to meet its burden to establish removability, really. 
In my opinion, Matter of Sog was intentionally vague on the expanse of IJ termination authority and purposefully did not mention prior precedents on termination. Like, for example, where there existed asserted constitutional violations by U.S. government officials. Or look at the facts of this very case. USCIS approved an immediate relative Form I-130 petition for Ms. Coronado Acevedo while her removal proceedings were on appeal to the BIA. It seems like she would have had no issues adjusting to lawful permanent resident status before USCIS, but for the removal order. DHS itself therefore filed an unopposed motion to dismiss the case with the BIA to permit Ms. Coronado Acevedo to apply to adjust status before USCIS. But the BIA believed that it lacked authority to terminate or dismiss the case, relying solely on matter of SOG. Attorney General Garland disagrees. The Fourth Circuit had actually already vacated matter of SOG, albeit not on direct petition for review, in Chavez-Gonzalez v. Garland, episode 78. And quoting Chavez-Gonzalez, Attorney General Garland states that, quote, The fact that Castro-Tum has been overruled should not only begin the analysis of Matter of Sog, but should definitively end it, end quote, a year and a half later. Indeed, Matter of Sog has, quote, imposed rigid procedural requirements that would undermine fair and efficient adjudication in certain immigration cases, end quote. So, in what appears to be a bit of a theme for Attorney General Garland, the Attorney General has overturned a presidential decision published by his Attorney General predecessor in a five-page decision, pending promised regulations. And until those regulations are promulgated, and God willing they are in time to resolve the inevitable resulting litigation, an immigration judge may terminate proceedings, quote, where a non-citizen has obtained lawful permanent residence after being placed in removal proceedings, where the pendency of removal proceedings causes adverse immigration consequences for a respondent who must travel abroad to obtain a visa, or where, as here, termination is necessary for the respondent to be eligible to seek immigration relief before USCIS, end quote. I wish Attorney General Garland had also mentioned the long-standing BIA precedent permitting termination where the U.S. government violates an entire procedural or constitutional framework that thereby makes removal proceedings in and of themselves fundamentally unfair. But I suppose I'll take what I can get for now. And that is a matter of Coronado Acevedo. Moving over to the circuits, we first have Iana Strejo v. Garland, published by the 8th Circuit on November 16th, 2022. This case is about motions to reopen and good moral character, and another former Trump administration attorney general decision as well. Mr. Yanis Trejo entered the United States in the 1990s, apparently without authorization, and he was removed following a DUI offense in 1998. He re-entered unlawfully, obtained another DUI, was placed in removal proceedings, but had his case administratively closed as a matter of prosecutorial discretion. He has U.S. citizen children. Made a big mistake, though, getting arrested for suspicion of DUI a third time a month after having his case administratively closed. Hard to sympathize with that, and it later resulted in a conviction. Placed back in removal proceedings, the immigration judge denied his application for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A-B. But it seems that Mr. Jan Estrejo was quite fortunate again. Or maybe I'm just becoming cynical. 
DHS did not argue that his multiple DUIs required that the immigration judge make a bad moral character finding that would therefore have barred his cancellation of removal application, nor did the immigration judge make such a finding. The IJ did, however, conclude that Mr. Yanis Trejo had failed to establish that his removal would cause exceptional or extremely unusual hardship to his U.S. citizen children, as non-LPR cancellation of removal requires. Mr. Yanis Trejo appealed. During appeal, Attorney General Barr issued matter of Castillo-Perez, which establishes a presumption that two DUIs mean that a non-citizen lacks good moral character for non-LPR cancellation of removal purposes, and seemingly any other purpose that requires a good moral character showing. But in this case, good moral character wasn't an issue on appeal, remember? The BIA affirmed the IJ on hardship, and the IJ never made a bad moral character finding. The BIA affirmed the IJ, but Mr. Yanis Trejo filed a motion to reopen or remand shortly after the BIA's dismissal became final. In the motion, Mr. Yanis Trejo sought to present new hardship evidence. He asserted that, quote, his wife and United States citizen daughter recently had been the victims of a hit-and-run accident, end quote, thereby meaning that they'd suffer further severe hardship in his absence. In response, DHS brought up matter of Castillo-Perez, despite seeming to have waived the good moral character issue below. The BIA denied Mr. Yanis Trejo's motion, finding that the new evidence didn't alter the insufficient hardship finding, and that in any event, matter of Castillo-Perez would bar Mr. Yanis Trejo from establishing good moral character in reopened proceedings. Interesting stuff. The Eighth Circuit agreed. Although not before making some helpful holdings. For example, the BIA had refused to consider injuries to Mr. Yanis Trejo's wife from the automobile accident in its hardship analysis during the motion to reopen adjudication, quote, due to her lack of an immigration status, end quote. To the Eighth Circuit, quote, had this been the only basis articulated, we would find an abuse of discretion even under this deferential standard, end quote. At least in the motion to reopen context. More on that at the end of this case. But that would have been error to the Eighth Circuit because, quote, the fact that the children's injured mother had no immigration status bears little relevance to the level of hardship the children were likely to face. Upon Mr. Yanis Trejo's removal, she would have been their sole caregiver, and her ability to provide care appears to have been materially diminished, end quote. Or put another way, as I often note in my briefs before both USCIS and Immigration Court, hardship and harms to non-qualifying relatives, no matter the relief or benefit sought under immigration law, must be considered to the extent that they cause a hardship to the qualifying relative. All of that being said, however, Mr. Yanis Trejo ran into matter of Castillo-Perez, an Attorney General Barr decision that Attorney General Garland has not saw fit to vacate. In matter of Castillo-Perez, Attorney General Barr said that two DUIs during the good moral character period establishes a rebuttable presumption that a non-citizen cannot establish good moral character. To overcome this presumption, a non-citizen must show, quote, substantial, relevant, and credible contrary evidence to demonstrate that the multiple convictions were an aberration. Driving under the influence one month after the suspension of his initial removal proceedings does not suggest the unusual showing described in matter of Castillo-Perez, end quote. The Eighth Circuit did not agree with Mr. Yanis Trejo's argument that it was unfair for the BIA to rely upon matter of Castillo-Perez, quote, given the earlier government concession and the IJ finding, end quote. 
Because remember, the IJ actually had found that Mr. Yanis Trejo had good moral character. Not much explanation by the Eighth Circuit for why it was appropriate for the BIA to rely upon this change of law and, essentially, engage in new factual balancing. Although perhaps there's a distinction by the fact that this is all happening in the motion to reopen context. To conclude, this may actually be the first presidential circuit decision affirming, at least implicitly, matter of Castillo-Perez. Unsure. I will note, however, that it does not appear that Mr. Yanis Trejo challenged the appropriateness of that decision or the presumption instituted by Attorney General Barr, so the issue wasn't technically before the 8th. Mr. Yanis Trejo, therefore, lost his case. But I've got one Patel-type jurisdiction note for you all, something that may occur more and more often on the podcast as the circuits grapple with this devastating Supreme Court case. The Eighth Circuit expressly held that it had jurisdiction to review the issues in this case, even under Patel. Specifically, the court held that it had jurisdiction to review the BIA's denial of a motion to reopen, notwithstanding the fact that the motion to reopen sought another opportunity for Mr. Yanis Trejo to apply for non-LPR cancellation of removal. Patel would likely bar a court from reviewing a direct factual challenge to a denial of non-LPR cancellation of removal. But this is a motion to reopen. No small holding, especially as oil was making and surely will continue to make this argument in motion to reopen cases. Stay tuned for more this very episode. And that is Yana Strejo v. Garland. Next, we head to the Fourth Circuit for the first of two cases. First, Santos de Jimenez v. Garland, published by the 4th on November 15, 2022. This first case is very short. The next case is very long. This case is about filing deadlines. Doesn't get more riveting than this, people. But filing deadlines have real-world consequences in law, for better or for worse. Ms. Santos de Jimenez and her minor daughter are asylum seekers from Guatemala. An immigration judge and then the BIA denied their case. INA Section 242b1 requires that a petition for review of the BIA's decision in the relevant circuit court, quote, must be filed not later than 30 days after the date of the final order of removal, end quote. While there is some recent case law explaining that BIA filing deadlines are merely claims processing rules subject to waiver or extension, this petition for review statutory deadline is, quote, mandatory and jurisdictional and is not subject to equitable tolling, end quote. So has said the Supreme Court. Ms. Santos de Jimenez filed her petition for review one day late. Unsure if she had counsel or not at the time of filing, but in any event, one day, day 31. What to do? Well, if this was an appeal from a federal district court decision, quote, Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 26C extends the filing period by three additional days, end quote if the adverse decision is served by mail. I think the only interesting part about this decision is that I get to use the acronym FRAP for Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure. Now, to be honest, in my experience, federal district courts never serve anything by mail anymore, because all attorneys receive electronic service over PACER. But whatever, FRAP 26C still exists. 
And of course, the BIA is only just emerging from the 20th century, and does indeed serve most of its decisions by mail. The BIA served its decision by mail here, so if FRAP 26C applies, Ms. Santos de Jimenez actually filed her petition for review two days early. But FRAP 26C does not apply, said the Fourth Circuit. INA Section 242b1 is the governing law, and that statute is tethered to the BIA's decision, not service of that decision. That can lead to some pretty crazy results if the BIA's mailroom becomes as delayed as those in some immigration courts, resulting in receipt of an adverse decision many weeks later. But nevertheless, Section 242b1 is the governing statute. Apparently this holding, that the petition for review time is tethered to the BIA's decision and not service, expressly aligns with decisions out of the 5th and the 10th circuits, and a pre-IRIRA decision out of the 9th circuit. It also apparently implicitly aligns with decisions out of the 11th, 7th, and 2nd circuits. To the extent that there's some authority out there that seems to hold otherwise, and tethers the petition for review time period to the deadline that the decision was mailed, the 4th circuit believes that it's outdated and relies on a prior iteration of the relevant statute. Although, as the Fourth Circuit says in a footnote, non-citizens can move the BIA to reissue their decisions, thereby restarting the petition for review clock. Some of the circumstances where that might be an option include, but are not necessarily limited to, situations where the non-citizen does not timely receive notice of the BIA's decision. Anyway, lacking jurisdiction, the Fourth Circuit didn't review whether the IJ and the BIA correctly determined that Ms. Santos de Jimenez and her minor daughter don't warrant this country's protection. Full electronic immigration court and BIA service cannot come soon enough. And that is Santos de Jimenez v. Garland. And so, the moment you've been waiting for, despite not knowing you had been waiting for it. Williams v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on November 16th, 2022. Wanted to get those cases out of the way before I hit you with this intellectual monstrosity. This is a big one on equitable tolling, motions to reopen, and just fairness generally. It's a long one, an important one, and it's pretty great for non-citizens. Mr. Williams is from Jamaica, but lived in the United States as a lawful permanent resident for decades, beginning at the age of six. As a young adult in 2006, however, he got into an altercation with a police officer. He was convicted in Virginia of assault and battery of a police officer, obstructing justice, disorderly conduct, and failure to appear at a later hearing. Lots of statutes that I shall not read. Quote, the three substantive offenses arose out of a single incident when Mr. Williams resisted an officer's spraying him with mace after he was already in handcuffs. Mr. Williams then failed to appear because of conflicting court dates. He was in one courtroom when he was called in another. End quote. How dare you try to make a point about our criminal justice system by relaying the facts of the case, Fourth Circuit? An IJ deemed the convictions two convictions, not arising out of a single scheme of criminal conduct, making Mr. Williams removable. He then applied for LPR cancellation of removal, and the IJ granted it. But DHS appealed. And on appeal, the BIA deemed the assault and battery conviction an aggravated felony under INA Section 101A43F because it matched the definition of an 18 U.S.C. Section 16A and 16B crime of violence. 
an aggravated felony bars all forms of cancellation of removal. Maybe it also then constituted grounds for the BIA to additionally find Mr. Williams removable. I guess it would have had to. So really, this case became all about aggravated felony crimes of violence. And so, Mr. Williams was deported to Jamaica, where, quote, he would spend the next 11 years working mostly for room and board, his U.S. citizen mother, siblings, girlfriend, now his wife, and children affording only a handful of trips to see him, end quote. As medium-sized nerds know without needing reminding, however, 18 U.S.C. Section 16b was deemed unconstitutional in the 2018 decision Sessions v. DeMaia. 18 U.S.C. Section 16a is still constitutional, but has a violent force requirement that isn't always easy for DHS to meet, and it's been narrowed by the Supreme Court in recent years, some discussed on the podcast. Most important to this decision, the Supreme Court's 2010 decision, Johnson v. U.S., apparently involved the very Virginia Code, Section 18.2-57 conviction that Mr. Williams had and held that criminal statutes like that one, that can result in conviction through, quote, mere touching of another, end quote, cannot be 18 U.S.C. Section 16A, Crimes of Violence. Again, an INA Section 101A43F Crime of Violence Aggravated Felony is defined by 18 U.S.C. Section 16A and 16B. But with Section 16b unconstitutional and out the window, today, quote, offenses that encompass mere offensive touching categorically cannot satisfy Section 16a's definition of a crime of violence and, correspondingly, cannot confer a basis for removal, end quote. All of that means that Mr. Williams' conviction, if it had occurred after 2018, would not have resulted in Mr. Williams losing his green card. But what to do now, with him already physically removed well before the publication of Johnson and DeMaia? Motions to reopen and motions to reconsider have specific substantive requirements and must be filed within 90 and 30 days of the removal order, respectively. That passed like 15 years ago for Mr. Williams, so what to do? Well, you ask for equitable tolling of the filing deadline, of course. Silly goose. The problem is that equitable tolling, if it's even available based on changes of law like Johnson and DeMaia, must be timely filed with due diligence. Johnson came out 12 years ago and DeMaia 4, although one year before Mr. Williams filed his motion here. Mr. Williams explained through an affidavit that he was working as a groundskeeper and maintenance man in Jamaica without internet access, much less a Westlaw account, and so didn't learn about any of these incredibly complicated U.S. Supreme Court case law changes for many years. Not only that, but Mr. Williams didn't think he had a path to return to the U.S. until after he married his girlfriend in 2019. The new attorney hired to help with that process realized what was going on after receiving a FOIA response and quickly filed a motion to reconsider with the BIA. And I guess that if that had been granted, Mr. Williams' green card would have been reinstated, and he actually wouldn't even need a marriage to a U.S. citizen to return to the U.S., I believe. But even though DHS didn't oppose the motion here, the BIA denied it. The BIA faulted Mr. Williams for having, quote, not regularly sought out pro bono counsel prior to April 2019 to stay informed on the status of the law, end quote from Jamaica, as a part-time maintenance man, without internet access. Mr. Williams brought it all to the Fourth Circuit, and the Fourth Circuit, quote, cannot agree with that result, end quote. 
First, and not for nothing, the Fourth Circuit agreed with many, many circuits to hold that indeed, quote, the statutory time and number limitations for motions to reconsider are subject to equitable tolling, end quote. One hurdle down. Then, not only did the Fourth Circuit agree that it had jurisdiction to review the issue here, something I'll get into heavy at the end of this case, but it agreed that as a mixed question of law and fact, whether Mr. Williams exercised due diligence such that the BIA should have reconsidered its prior removal order must be reviewed by the Fourth Circuit de novo. That is, no deference to the BIA's decision. Big holding. Give it all a read, too, because it's important and more complicated than how I just framed it, and it encompasses many, many pages. But how about this? Quote, a non-citizen's entitlement to equitable tolling, in short, implicates a matter of right, not grace. End quote. If non-citizens prevent sufficient evidence to extend deadlines, says the Fourth Circuit, they must be extended. After about 35 preliminary but uber-important pages, the Fourth Circuit got to the meat of it. To recap, quote, non-citizens seeking equitable tolling must demonstrate that they have been pursuing their rights diligently, but extraordinary circumstances beyond their control made it impossible to file within the statutory deadline, end quote. That being said, quote, a non-citizen needs to act only with reasonable, not maximum feasible, diligence, end quote. Met here. True. The Supreme Court and BIA held that Mr. Williams' Virginia battery conviction wasn't an 18 U.S.C. Section 16A crime of violence in 2010. But it wasn't until 2018 that the Supreme Court killed Section 16B. So it was only then that Mr. Williams' conviction was definitively no longer an aggravated felony. Therefore, and unlike what the BIA believed, the diligence period didn't begin until 2018. That Mr. Williams didn't immediately discover DeMaya, again from Jamaica, without an attorney and without regular internet, was reasonable to the Fourth Circuit. Under these circumstances, at least, it is absurd to fault him for not continuously and regularly trying to secure pro bono attorneys in the United States forever until the law changed so as to benefit from the law when it eventually changed. When determining reasonable diligence, it appears, the Fourth Circuit is holding that the BIA must factor in the specific circumstances that the non-citizen encounters. Quote, The government's suggestion simply cannot be squared with the realities of Mr. Williams' life. End quote. In any event, Mr. Williams' eventual attorney acted, quote, exceedingly diligent, end quote, once things were learned, filing a motion to reconsider merely a month after receiving his FOIA documents. And important to remember for motions such as this, Mr. Williams' quote, rights hinged on complicated, multi-step decisions handed down by the Supreme Court, end quote. What Mr. Williams did, one year after DeMaia, was enough to satisfy due diligence. For all of those great holdings, this remand is actually now for the BIA to determine whether, quote, Johnson and DeMaia presented an extraordinary circumstance that would warrant equitable tolling, end quote. Sigh. But they seem extraordinary to me. Enter the dissenting justices in DeMaia, if I recall correctly, from the back and forth between concurring Justice Gorsuch and the dissents. Things to think about and argue on remand. Plus noted the Fourth Circuit loudly, quote, The BIA has held that Supreme Court decisions that significantly change the legal landscape meet this bar. End quote. Bring back Mr. Williams. 
Congratulations, Ben Winograd, for petitioner. What a win, Ograd. Judge Rushing dissented. Now I'm going to talk about complicated matters of jurisdiction. Skip ahead if you don't give a what. I skipped all of this in the summary above, but it's important. The case here involves a similar jurisdiction-stripping provision to the one often discussed in the Patel cases, but actually it's more expansive where it applies. INA Section 242A2C, quote, prohibits courts of appeals to review any final order of removal against a non-citizen who is removable by reason of having committed certain specified crimes, including aggravated felonies and multiple CIMTs, end quote. Oil argued that this meant that the Fourth Circuit could not review the factual due diligence issue presented in this case, whether, for example, Mr. Williams should be punished for failing to search out an attorney from Jamaica for over a decade. It's actually a big deal. If the Fourth Circuit can't review this issue, this entire case might have fallen apart. But instead, the Fourth Circuit, quote, agreed with Mr. Williams that the INA never meant to bar judicial review of collateral facts far removed from the underlying final order of removal, end quote. That is, whether Mr. Williams did or did not exercise due diligence sufficient to permit equitable tolling has nothing to do with whether he was convicted of an aggravated felony, a CIMT, or any of the other issues relevant to the validity of his final order of removal. And it is that, final order of removal factual review, which INA Section 242A2C bars where certain criminal convictions are at play. It's a similar rationale to the one used by the Supreme Court in Nasrallah. Factual findings underlying cat protection can be reviewed because they rarely, if ever, have anything to do with the final order of removal itself. Those factual findings govern simply what to do with the final order. In the cat context, withhold or defer it. And in this case, reconsider it. Heady stuff. To hold otherwise would essentially make the BIA unreviewable, said the Fourth Circuit. And quote, long-standing exercise of judicial review of the BIA's reconsideration decisions, the history of the relevant statutory provisions, the presumption favoring judicial review, and separation of powers concerns all reinforce this conclusion. End quote. Congress may have been intentionally cruel with immigration changes in the 1996 IRIRA law, but it wasn't that cruel, said the court. And at least the Ninth Circuit and even the Eleventh and GASP, Fifth Circuit, as well. So long as the factual issue and dispute is indeed collateral to the final order of removal. Oh, the knots we attorneys must tie and untie to get a man his green card back where immigration law says that he should never have lost it in the first place. And that, my friends, is Williams v. Garland. That brings us to Yusuf v. Garland, published by the Sixth Circuit on November 16th, 2022. This final case is about Convention Against Torture Protection. Mr. Yusuf entered the United States as a refugee from Iraq before the United States invasion. He became a lawful permanent resident. And ten years later, he made a big mistake and got convicted of conspiracy to distribute a bunch of marijuana. An immigration judge determined that the crime was a particularly serious one that barred Mr. Youssef from everything except Convention Against Torture deferral, 
And then the IJ denied that, finding that Mr. Yusuf would not, in fact, be tortured based on his Chaldean Christian religion. He was not removed, and he moved to reopen his case years later, arguing that things had gotten even worse in Iraq for Chaldean Christians like him. And even worse for individuals like him, who had spent a lot of time in the United States. The IJ eventually granted the motion and reopened proceedings. But then at a new individual hearing, denied cat deferral again. In doing so, the IJ found DHS's evidence, quote, more persuasive, end quote, than the expert affidavit and other specific country condition evidence submitted by Mr. Yusuf. And indeed, DHS appears to have brought an expert, or at least expert reports, of its own. Appealed to the BIA, the BIA believed that the IJ did everything right and denied Mr. Yusuf's alternative motion to remand for presentation of additional expert evidence. The Sixth Circuit agreed with the BIA. For example, it believed much of the evidence about the risk from ISIS, quote, outdated, end quote, and that in any event, the record did not show that the Iraqi government acquiesces to ISIS, as would be required for cat deferral. Just the opposite, in fact. Plus, quote, two government experts emphasize that Western influences are not unwelcome or uncommon in Iraq, end quote. Mr. Yusuf will be okay, said the court, notwithstanding his criminal record in the U.S. and long-term residence here. That's the factual reason for denying. Here's the legal challenges. The Sixth Circuit believed, contrary to Mr. Yusuf's argument, that the IJ and the BIA had indeed properly aggregated all risks of torture, and then had determined whether, in the aggregate, there was at least a 51% chance of torture. That aggregation analysis might not even actually be required in the Sixth Circuit, although it is in other circuits, but in any event it was done here, said the court. As to the denial of the motion to remand for submission of additional expert evidence, well, the BIA wasn't wrong to find that the proposed evidence was merely, quote, cumulative, end quote, of previously submitted evidence, and that it was unlikely to change the result of the case. Nor did this new expert evidence show that Mr. Youssef, in particular, was at a specific risk of torture, a flaw deemed lacking by the IJ and BIA previously. Although cumulative evidence may, if significant enough, become so material to a case that remand for reconsideration is required, quote, incremental changes in volatile atmospheres do not show materially changed country conditions, end quote. And that's what the Sixth Circuit saw here. Seems like the Sixth Circuit was shooting down a lot of creative arguments, but ultimately did shoot them down. That includes what appears to be counsel using what may be Ben Winograd's unpublished BIA opinion repository to argue that the BIA has 15 times granted cat protection or remanded proceedings for Chaldean Christians similar to Mr. Youssef. Love it. Still didn't win. But the Sixth Circuit was dodging arguments for sure. Finally, Mr. Yusuf argued through counsel that the Sixth Circuit should remand to determine whether Mr. Yusuf's drug trafficking conviction was indeed a particularly serious crime in light of Attorney General Garland's decision in matter of BZR that mental health can and should be considered in the particularly serious crime analysis. This case is like a law school exam. The Sixth Circuit denied that request too, primarily because, in fact, Mr. Youssef, quote, does not allege any mental health issues, end quote. Not gonna lie, sounds pretty solid to me on that one. So the Sixth Circuit denied like 20 arguments and ruled against Mr. Youssef. But how about this? (music) 
Although it's a bit confusing and ultimately not so important to the merits here, check out the discussion about the BIA's seminal convention against torture case, matter of JFF, including in the footnotes. That case generally stands for the proposition, right or wrong, that to succeed on a CAT claim, a non-citizen must show that every link in a hypothetical chain of events leading to torture is more likely than not to occur. The Ninth Circuit appears to have narrowed JFF in Velasquez Semayoa v. Garland, episode 113 of the podcast, and I'm positive that the excellent petition for review attorney on this case made some very good arguments as well. Maybe ask him for his briefs. Legal, that is. And that is Yusef V. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.